0: Welcome to the Growth League podcast where we interview business owners who have experienced quantum leap growth in their business. In each episode, we're going to dive deep into our guests' first-hand experience about what it was like 90 days before and 90 days after that point when their business started experiencing massive growth. Christine Gowdy is the co-founder and CEO of Granville Biomedical Incorporated. She's a product design entrepreneur with in-depth experience spanning medical device design, healthcare research and development, 3D printing, clinical trial research, commercialization, marketing strategy, technical illustration, branding, packaging design, and digital design. Whew. She has a passion for entrepreneurship inclusive design, and healthcare innovation. Christine's a graduate of Carleton University with a Master of Design from the School of Industrial Design with a focus in biomedical sciences. Her main business, Granville Biomedical, was founded in 2019 by herself and her partner, Crystal Northcott. It was founded as a women's health tech company specializing in the design of anatomical models to enhance healthcare training advance patient education and innovate device demonstration. Hailing from St. John's, Newfoundland, the company's novel anatomical training models have been used by healthcare trainees, practitioners, pelvic floor physiotherapists and medical device companies, as well as sexual educators to rehearse and demonstrate procedures and products within women's health. During the COVID pandemic, they spun out a second company called Granville Swab, designed by Granville Biomedical, as a novel nasopharyngeal swab comprised of a single biocompatible medical grade material which focuses on increased patient comfort and workflow efficiencies. You'll hear all about Granville Swab and Granville Biomedical, as well as Christine's story in the evolution of both companies coming right up. Welcome, Christine. It's uh, so nice to see you again. So nice to have you on the show.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: So I want to jump right into things. And, and one of the first uh, elements that uh, we think about it at Hook and Ladder when we're when we're working with partners is um, not who is the target market, but deeper than that, who, who are your individual specific customer segments? And from a psychographic sort of makeup in a buying uh, motivation standpoint, who, who are your segments and what resonates with them? How are they different from one another? And, and what do you guys do to resonate with each one of them? How do they buy?
1: Yeah, so our customer base is pretty diverse. Uh, we target private practitioners and also, nonprofit outreach initiatives. So, very, very different worlds. Um, one has an unlimited budget based on whatever they need for their practice, and yeah. the other one has a very, very strict budget, relying heavily upon donations and uh, their own fundraising efforts. Um, we really try to tailor our marketing and relationships based on knowing that background information about how they purchase and how they make those decisions. Um, so it's been, it's been a really interesting, uh, I guess, learning curve for, for us in the first two years of business, yeah. just trying to really understand how both of those areas work and uh, how we most effectively target each one with our marketing and just building those relationships.
0: So to clarify, the, the first group with the un, unlimited budget, who, who is that again? And, and who is typically the individual decision maker within that, that group or organization?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, we started off thinking that we were going to sell into healthcare institutions, um, teaching hospitals, that kind of thing. And we were very sadly mistaken because the budget is just not there. So we found our early adopter customers in the private practitioner space. So pelvic floor physiotherapists, um, private companies who uh, design and distribute medical devices. Um, Uh, menstrual cup manufacturers so basically private industry and whoever controls their own budget Um, so that's who we sell to mostly and uh, it's not the healthcare institutions after all who we initially created our whole entire marketing strategy to target in the early days so we had to really um, reconsider how we positioned our company once we realized that the revenue was coming from the private sector Um, so so that was interesting
0: I think that's a really important lesson and something that takes a lot of bravery and guts to do, right. Which is, Hey, we set out on a certain course, um, but based on the data that we're seeing, we need to pivot and we need to do it quickly and and make it look like it's organized. Like it was intentional. (laughs) So yeah,
1: And and also like the market doesn't lie. Right. So if the revenue is coming from the private space, we just had to accept that and very quickly um, you know, uh, just kind of reorganize our efforts and, and our vision. So we yeah. need to move on that.
0: For these private practitioners, what is the biggest challenge or pain or need that you're in place to alleviate for them? What are you, you know, what, what, what do you solve from them from a macro and then, then more specifically on a product level?
1: Yeah. So in women's health, uh, there's a lot of shrouded mystery around, Um, various procedures and uh, teaching and learning, uh, even as a patient. And so a lot of the private practitioners that purchase our models, our anatomical models, they're able to demonstrate various procedures just to increase the comfort level of their patients, um, help them understand various new types of methods and treatments, um, and, uh, and just teach them virtually as well. And that's something that we saw during the pandemic. Everything was always in person, Um, So now suddenly they have these anatomical models so that they can retain their customer base, their patient base, and actually attract new patients during a pandemic, which is interesting. Hmm. Um, In person, it's beneficial just because they can then demonstrate as opposed to always demonstrating on the patient. um, Because a lot of women within various female, uh, you know, healthcare procedures, it's very uncomfortable. You don't really want a doctor to demonstrate how to massage the perineal uh, area or, or things of that nature. So now at least they have a, a model to demonstrate with in person and virtually.
0: So be- before Granville Biomedical, I mean, largely was this was this market um, demonstrating on on actual people or, or like what was the alternative bef- before you and and tell me about that.
1: Yeah, that's a great question, and we're asked that so often. But um, the reason myself and my co founder, Crystal Northcott, started the company was because it was brought to our attention that in healthcare training um, on a national level and even internationally, they train with things like car washing sponges and cow tongues to replicate and simulate female anatomy. So, in terms of teaching healthcare practitioners and future Um, OBGYN doctors, how to suture lacerations that occur during childbirth on an anatomically accurate model. Of course, you can't train on a human. So they were teaching them using things like orange peels, car washing sponges, cow tongs. And so it was only a couple of years ago that Crystal and I discovered, like, are they still using that garbage? And we decided, like, this is absolutely insanity that that's acceptable or good enough or, you know something that they're using in Canadian healthcare training right. or US healthcare training in, in you know North America. So we decided to figure out why and where the competitors are and what that barrier was to adopting anatomically accurate models. Hmm. And we discovered quickly that it was a price point issue. It's just that the competitors out there, there's there's models out there, but you're gonna pay a lot for these things. And the healthcare training courses and teaching hospitals just didn't have the budget. Gotcha. So yeah, we just decided to create something that was accessible, anatomically accurate, and affordable, so that we get these in the hands of anyone who could use them.
0: Okay, no, that makes sense. From the beginning, when you guys, uh, you know, became aware of this this issue and this gap in the market, this void, um, tell me. Tell us about the the evolution of Granville Biomedical from from idea through to, you know, the storming, norming, and performing phases, or however you want to refer to it. What's the journey been like?
1: Yeah, well, it's certainly not linear. I can guarantee you that, like most people's story in entrepreneurship, it's been all over the place. We started off with that in mind, creating laceration repair models, uh, targeting healthcare institutions and schools, as I mentioned, and quickly realizing that's not the that's not the only issue. Uh, The bigger issue is that disparity in women's health research, in hands-on training and so much more. So we just kept, um, I guess, expanding our product line to include so many other types of models as well, just to really see where the market was at, who needs what and how can we service that gap and those multiple gaps in that industry. Um, and when the company turned one year old, we had really exciting projections and expectations for the upcoming year. And that's when COVID struck. Yeah. And so it was one of those things where it's kind of, you know, you adapt what you're doing or you die. That's kind of what was in my head. Like We need to now sink or swim, adapt or die. And, and what does that mean now that uh, healthcare institutions and, and academia are gonna train from home and work remotely and work virtually So that changed the game for us all together. And uh, when the federal government said, you know, we need supply chains, domestic supply chains for PPE and different types of um, medical devices in Canada, because that's what we quickly realized we were lacking when the pandemic struck. Well, we put our hand up because we were already 3D printing our our models and our products. And we said, okay, well, we have a biocompatible printer so we can help by producing anything from face shields to button poachers to swabs, nasal swabs. Right. And we ended up with that. They decided, okay, great. If you can make nasal swabs, like let's get you working on that. Found some funding for that. And before we knew it, we went from basically vulva models to nasopharyngeal swabs, which were completely unrelated. Yeah. And very quickly we realized now we have two very different components of the company. We can't really merge those back together. And right. we have to accept the fact that we have now two um, you know, running streams of potential revenue And a lot of research and development initiatives underway and a very, very tiny team. Right. And so this past year has been very pivotal. Um, Even though the word pivot is overused, the word (laughs) pivotal is still not. But it's it's still cool. (laughs) Yeah, it was a very pivotal year for us because we found ourselves evolving into a medical device manufacturing company, which was not in the cards or in the game plan from day one. And we just embraced it and decided, you know, if this is where we're being led and this is how we can contribute, then we're happy to do that while still trying to sell our women's health models and keep that piece of the company alive because our passion is in the women's health side. Okay. And our social responsibility was in the, you know, um, building that domestic supply chain in Canada.
0: Interesting. We're very torn. But it sounds like in both cases, you, we're adamant about attaching a a more important why to it right with the with the women's health models that's where the passion originally laid uh or, or or is born um with the medical device that you felt it's interesting you said it was a social responsibility like why why do you feel called to to fulfill that responsibility or why did you
1: Yeah. I mean, as a designer, I've always been very much in the mindset that you need to pursue your passion. So whatever that is, I think it's so critically important because when, when shit hits the fan and when times get tough, if you're not loving what you're doing and have a bigger purpose attached to it, you're going to give up. Right. And we would have given up because financially and even just emotionally and my God, in every sense of the word, like we were really, really um, defeated this past year, feeling like we lost the original vision of the company, and now we're creating squabs, and we don't even know if those are going to launch, <laughs> and uh, we just knew like, we were trying to help with the greater good in both realms. Yeah. You're right, and I've always promised myself that, that I will never pursue a project the rest of my life unless I have a very burning desire to do something for the greater good, Mm. And that's something that I kind of became um, obsessed with in my late 20s. I used to work as a wheelchair seating designer and I had a really huge passion for design for disabilities. And uh, I I left my job as a wheelchair seating designer, decided to create an app for wheelchair users to take the power Mm. back and understand the pressure ulcer, risk levels and whatnot in a seated position in a wheelchair. And that was my very first startup. And I didn't understand back then how to get funding, but I was so passionate about it that I just knew like this is gonna this is gonna transpire at some point, but I think I need to circle back to it later. And anyways, long story longer, then we started Granville and we created the Women's Health Models, which I absolutely love. And now we're moving into the swab realm and everything definitely has a bigger purpose, but something that pulls us forward. Right. And, and I think that's so critical. And when people ask me, I'm thinking, you know, when they say, like, what about entrepreneurship? I don't know if it's for me. And I'm like, well, it's for anybody who has a, a passion they want to pursue. and There's a bigger, greater, good attached to it, because I feel like that's going to keep you going. When that's you awesome. Get really, really tough. Yeah.
0: So there's almost like two sides. There's two sides of your company, right? Each one of them have very different customer segments, would they not? Like, how do you how do you keep the... Um, so that the consolidation of Granville Biomedical, but then speak to the swab market versus. Uh, so who is the who is the customer segment for the for the uh, medical device or swab swab market?
1: Yeah, so it would be the federal government, and then also <laughs> and then also private uh, clinics. Okay. So, you know that those were also two very new markets for us, and for us to understand those, we had to fast track all of that hire the right people to help us with our marketing strategy and really just hit the ground running and understand how do we sell to the federal government? How do we sell to the provincial microbiology labs? How do we do any of those things and do it all within 12 months? And the federal government at the 11th hour said they were not going to issue tenders to purchase from these new supply chain manufacturers in Canada, but they were already stockpiled with foreign swabs. And we were very, very disappointed by that because we felt like we, were, we yeah. were led down, very deep down this rabbit hole. We really wanted to help, we still want to help. And then they basically took that carrot away from yeah. in front of our eyes at the very last minute. And uh, I, I don't know, I still have some very mixed feelings about that, but I don't want to go too depth, <laughs> too depth into it just in case it jeopardizes any future funding. But we, we just would love to see the federal government support the domestic supply chains that it set out to create, because we created one. Right. We don't want that to dissipate and lose it because the interest or appetite has disappeared at the federal level. Because it doesn't mean that right. we may not need you know a lot of swabs again in a year from now or two years from now. And and here we are set up as a Canadian manufacturer, and we're not we're not getting the follow through support mm. that we really need to keep going.
0: Would the private market still be a feasible market to feed into with that product, though, even if even if from the government level, that avenue is closed? Uh, I'm going to say no,
1: um, just because we've met with the uh, provincial microbiology labs across Canada. Uh, they're all stockpiled with foreign swabs right. still. And so now we're looking at exporting into the U.S. and potentially Europe longer term. Okay. Um, but I mean, it's unfortunate because, you know, that storyline doesn't feel good to me that a Canadian company could not, you know, find that traction required in their own country. And now we oh, looking for yeah. it because what a shame and, yeah. and sure, if we can help the U S and parts of Europe, then we will, but I felt like we really want to help our own country first. And well, so that's interesting
0: to me that they would make the ask for domestic supply. And then what did they just think? Nobody was going to call the bell, you know, answer the bell.
1: I don't know, but I mean, there was nine companies, nine in Canada that became swab manufacturers. And these are companies that were automotive companies, Right. Uh, aircraft mechanic companies. Um, there's other healthcare companies that that answered the call as well. But there was nine of us that were approved by Health Canada and launched in the marketplace in Canada. And uh, I, I don't know, and I can't speak to whether or not the other ones have been successful. We're led to believe if they were, it was very short-lived. Mm. And so we're we're just kind of looking deeper into that now. But you know, big picture is we need to support Canadian made and manufactured long-term sustainability of the country. And, you know, God forbid there's another pandemic, but we need to prepare for that too. And so now I see. Yeah. And
0: just talking to you a couple of times, I don't get the sense uh, that you're going to let this interfere your, uh, your drive forward. So it's just, just the next thing, I guess. Right. So. Tell me a little bit, or tell us a little bit about your marketing mix. Like, how do you get in front of? I mean, assuming some of the private, um, private mm-hmm. clinics and private uh, healthcare practitioners are coming to you, um, but for for you seeding initial conversations, what goes into your marketing mix? How does how does that look?
1: Yeah, so well, both parts of the company are very different in terms of marketing. So the women's health. You know, we've had a lot of success with social media with the women's health side, which is ironic because it's a little bit uh, graphic in nature or perceived to be graphic. I don't know that it's, you know, should be, you know, classified as that, but um, it it is a little bit graphic in nature. We've never been pulled off social media for any reason, which is great. And we found amazing support online through our social media channels, women's health networks. Um, public private practitioners and uh, that's been a great mix for us to reach out to a lot of people that way we find a lot of uh, revenue that way yeah the swabs you know we've tried that same approach with the swabs but of course it's just a very different audience the people that are looking at social media are not purchasing swabs necessarily so we tried that realm at first to be that you know cool company that's making swabs and we're also on social media yeah. And I don't think the two really mix, right? Like okay. a cool company making swabs, I just don't think it, it, okay. it is such a thing. So um, we created a different marketing strategy for the swabs. And that was to really uh, get into the microbiology labs across the country, really speak to the directors and the decision makers. It's very political,
0: right? right. So the,
1: the, the medical device yeah. realm of space, Health Canada has one of the most stringent and strict regulatory systems in the entire world so once you are approved as a medical device establishment and you can sell class one through class four devices it's just a very different marketing approach because it's all about getting to the decision makers and letting them know that you're there um, coming into the market as a new emerging uh, manufacturer Mm -hmm. and also proving that you have something safe and effective trustworthy um, that they can feel comfortable to replace their old products with so it's just very political. And then our women's health is very not political. It's just very uh, more of the softer side of, of selling and marketing and Interesting. Like you're pulling on the heartstrings a little bit about the bigger need for women's health, uh, teaching and learning. But it's, it's been a challenge because we had to switch gears pretty quick to yeah. go into the device space.
0: So on the swab side on the you talk about getting into these biomedical labs, getting from in front of the decision maker in that market are those decision makers looking at your product as a bit of a commodity and they're just shopping price or is there anything you can do to maybe further educate them or convince them in one way or another to work with you? And what does that look like?
1: Yeah, medical devices, especially consumables, it's all about the price, the the competitive pricing that they can get from from China and from importing the swabs from different countries. Um, Not to pick on China, but just because there are there's sure. a huge influx of, of products from China, um, and so it really comes down to pricing. And can a Canadian manufacturer compete against the prices coming out of Asia? I'm not sure how you could. You know, <laughs> we have struggled to do everything we can for our cost of goods to be lowered and to be as economical as possible. And I don't know how we could possibly do it for cheaper. And we're still not at that price point that that China sells in Canada for. So. Mm. It does come down to price, um, but it also comes down to creating a superior product that I think eventually can gain that traction that you need, but it takes time. The medical device space is so different because it just takes, it can take years to find penetration into that customer base and healthcare practitioners who are very all about tried, tested and true. We've always used this product. We've always liked it for these reasons. Then, how do you get in there and and convince them that there's something new that's gonna work as good or better? Okay. You know, make their lives easier. Cause they're looking at workflow, ease of workflow, too. Right. And, And to disrupt that by introducing a new product is also a bit of a risk for them. Right. Whereas with health, it's not really price, it's not price competitive and price driven it's more quality and show me the benefits of the outcomes of teaching and learning using more anatomically accurate models. I think then you can, you can make a case for a higher price point.
0: Do you get the sense on the women's health side that, um, these practitioners are intentionally searching for anatomically more anatomically correct uh, models, or is it something that they are not problem aware of yet? They're, they're happy using the sponge or the, I think they said the cow tongue, Uh, or is it something that they're like, we're looking for this and you just need to be there.
1: Um, it's a bit of both. I think some of the, the more progressive and innovative doctors and practitioners are always looking for better opportunities to teach and learn and, and, uh, retain patients and gain new patients and right. just create a higher level of learning, but those are fewer, and you know, they're few and far between. It seems like the mass majority are still very okay with things being okay. Mm -hmm. And the car washing sponges are a dollar. So how can they justify spending a hundred dollars on a model when they spend a dollar and provide their entire training course in, uh, I think it was in Vance a couple of years back where they did a national training seminar and they used the uh, car washing sponges and cow tongues. And so I just, you know, it's, it's just price for, for that, those institutions. But I think, you know, what we need to do in the women's health side is just, we're trying to work to get our cost of goods as low as possible and the women's health side as well. Cause I think that if we we're in that early adopter stage still, but I think we can kind of get to that early, you know, early majority, I hope, or, or somewhere around there, if we can just get that price where it makes sense for them. So maybe the model would be $50 each or 75 versus a hundred Right. And so we're playing with some price points now to see where is that sweet spot? Because if they complain and still purchase, that's okay. Yeah, yeah, but if they complain yeah. and don't buy, then we're we're in trouble. We need to sustain our company. Right, but
0: I also saw, well, not but, and I also saw some of your messaging on um, <clears throat> a few posts that I, I looked at, your social channels and the angle you were taking, which seems right to me, the angle you were taking is that it's not, a. I mean, cost is a factor, but it's about, providing a better overall top to bottom experience for the people that have freedom of choice, whether they use your private practice or somebody else's private practice. Right. So at the end of the day, the patients or the, or their, their clients are going to appreciate a more anatomically correct product. I would imagine over a, a sponge.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, patients in terms of teaching and learning from a practitioner, I think appreciate an anatomically accurate model so they can really get mm. a sense of what is this device you're going to insert inside my body or right. how does this procedure work or what does it look like when a speculum is inserted into the canal. I think there's so many different things that women would just be a lot more comfortable with right. if they can just see it done before it's done to them. Right. And the unfortunate part is in women's health, there's a lot of procedures that are very, very painful, very, very uncomfortable. Women don't talk about it. And I can promise you if you asked 100 women, I would say a, a major majority of that 100 would say and agree with me, but I don't quote me on that. But <laughs> sure. um, you know, it's a very common mindset that there's a fear to go to the doctor. There's a fear to have those procedures done and even just routine procedures. So right. I feel like a lot of it is because we don't know what that looks like. What are you describing to us? What does that, what was that gonna feel like? And I think the visuals is what's lacking. So when you go to your doctor and you're asking questions about contraceptives, such as IUDs or various procedures, well, when they draw a diagram on a piece of paper and hand it to you, well, that doesn't suffice because that doesn't truly right. show me what that is or where that's going. If you pull up an image on the internet in the doctor's office and, you know, typically they'll show you, well, this is what it would look like. And, and that's all we get. Right. And there's so much complexity to women's health that it's just unfortunate that it's such a a non-visual experience and I think that's what creates all that fear in women to go and even have those procedures done right so I think um yeah just in terms of of a practitioner helping their patients definitely but also if you look at big picture um the safety of the patient overall Mm -hmm. because if you're training on car washing sponges and cow tongues Well then how do you ever feel comfortable, confident and and competent to go ahead and suture the lacerations caused by childbirth and know and feel like you really, truly have a handle on that when the only thing you've ever worked on was a car washing sponge and then then suddenly you're you're a resident and your supervisor uh, says, well, you're going to deliver this baby today and you're going to do any suturing required. And some of the residents have told us their hands are shaking so bad because they've only trained on tongues and there's no land, there's no there's no kind of markers for what the actual real scenario would look like and so they're left to deal with all of that while there's a room full of people watching and biofluids and people crying and babies crying and they said it's horrendous like it's just really scary for them
0: so you but you <clears throat> excuse me your your target market in that side of the business are they aware of this because to me it seems uh, very obvious that, that would be something that you want to invest in. I'm not not sure I understand in terms of like, are they, are they not problem aware? Do they not get it that this is
1: <clears throat> well, I think almost a
0: requirement? Like
1: this is something I've been thinking about a lot lately. I think we need to really push the problem. We started the company trying to be a little bit sheepish. We didn't want to make people too uncomfortable because we already knew the visuals would make people uncomfortable. So we didn't want to push the whole, well, you know, here's the risks and here's what people are using. And I just didn't want to be too, um, I guess, I don't know, turn people off too quickly. But I think at this point, two years later, we need to start getting very honest Mm -hmm. and real about what's being used, why that's an issue. Why would you train your, your healthcare uh, trainees with these products when we know better, we can do better, we can sell in affordable prices. Right. We, can, we can answer all your objectives, so, or objections, sorry. So if your objection is money, okay, then we can work with you to give you a discount for your healthcare institution. If it's, I don't know, um, accessibility, well, we can ship them anywhere in the world um if it's uh cultural appropriation we can do any color we can do custom right. coloring of these models as well and, right. there, and so on and so forth so now we're in talks with a company in tokyo actually which is interesting and uh they're really excited about what we're doing because it's a little bit conservative over there in terms of right. women's health anything graphic in nature and uh we're hope, hoping that we can really kind of get into that market and they can use these um in all their teaching and learning initiatives mm-hmm. so we're excited about that opportunity but we want to be in every country yeah so that's a great start internationally but uh, we want to keep going mm-hmm. with that
0: that's awesome as it relates to maybe let's stay on the on the women's health side what are the um you know if you look back over the last year <laughs> Um, what, are you, what, what are you most fulfilled by or most happy about, most proud about, I guess, from, a, from that side of the business? What would you say that, you know, we did this?
1: Oh, boy. Um, you know, we had some amazing partnerships that were very, very um, influential on how we approach some aspects of women's health. We had an amazing partnership with an outreach initiative that did work in Sierra Leone. Mm. And they had volunteers on the ground. There were locals that delivered uh, training courses for some of the villagers, and they went down and provided some of our models to those villagers. And of course, this was very novel and unique for them to learn with. Yeah. And we had some pictures and videos come back, and the villagers were so excited about learning in such a realistic way. Um, we were so thrilled about that. So that was a kind of a win. Um, Also just distributing, you know, we have orders come in from Ireland and the U.S. and hopefully now Tokyo and parts of Africa and just just seeing the videos and pictures come back from some of these places is exciting. Hmm. Um, So I would say that for sure, but kind of in a different way. I feel like what I'm most proud of is that we didn't let the company fall apart when we were sent in a different direction with swabs. Yeah. And we, we did kind of hold true to our vision and we wouldn't let the women's health part die. Uh, we kept it going we kept fulfilling orders all through the pandemic even though we were creating swabs and we refused to let that go mm. and we still refused to let it go we still feel like there's a big opportunity there and uh yeah we're just we're just hanging on and and what people you know don't talk enough about is how do you have a support system in place when when things do go sideways in the startup and uh, especially during the pandemic <laughs> we were trying to run two companies. We had five people and just the mental health supports we needed to have in place and the support of each other within the team was so critical because that's kind of all we had. We were just hanging on by a thread. And yeah. uh, so, so I'm really proud of how the team also yeah. uh, reallocated all of our resources and efforts and energies. we so quickly to go from, okay, guys, now we're not going to be making these models for a little bit. We're going to just go help the government for a bit and create these swabs. And everyone on the team had been hired because they also had a passion in women's health and I mm. was we so proud of the team and how they responded to answer that call with us. And, and now we're slowly going back to the women's health piece. Everyone's super thrilled about that, but I'm just so incredibly proud of how adaptable the team was. And that's something that was a surprise because you don't know until you're tested yeah. as to how adaptable, you know, you can be. And I thought that was really cool.
0: Oh, that's a great answer. I think that there's a really important nugget there, which is, you build a company around something that you and the and the team is passionate about, and you pour everything into that. But sometimes you need to iterate from a product perspective to protect that thing, right? But in so doing, keeping your your head on the swivel and seeing, hey, maybe there's a, a market for for this other thing too, which was originally intended to protect the original thing. You know, you're following me, but but you understand the idea that customer segment has you know, a desired transformation that they want to achieve. And if you have the, the resources from, in your cases, you know, technology and, and a material standpoint to fulfill that, then why not? But I love it how you use that tactic to protect the original thing, right? Yeah. And, and I can almost feel like when you're talking about that, I can feel the, the sense of enthusiasm your team must have, right, in coming back into the original, the original why, right? Yeah, because I keep
1: saying, yeah, like we, we're still here, we're still alive, we're badly burned, but we're still here, <laughs> and uh, you know, we're, we're hanging on, and the team's excited now to recalibrate again towards women's health, yeah. uh, at least for now, so that's exciting, and I feel like we're always looking for ways now to bring our swab ideas and, and research and development back to women's health. So we've been working on some really cool novel pelvic exam swabs, oh, believe it or not. So, yeah, we,
0: that makes sense. Totally yeah. makes sense. right?
1: Yeah, just one day I thought, well, now we have swabs and vulva models. Is there any way? And I went, oh, well, why don't we just create a swab yeah. for women's health? Let's just see if it can take off or if we can get some traction there. But now we have some really cool iterations and designs of some really interesting pelvic exam swabs. That's awesome. Uh-huh. That's that's kind of the future and what we'd love to see happen. That's that's where we're at. That's awesome.
0: What about on on the other side, like from a from a growth standpoint? What is the biggest challenge that you're faced with right now? Um, Stay on the women's health side um, first.
1: Yeah, Uh, lack of investment. We're having a very very hard time um, sourcing investment. We've had amazing generous funding through. Uh, the National Research Council, and uh, various other sources. But in terms of private investment, it's hard for us to prove that the women's health side of the company is massively scalable.
0: Okay. So, Why is uh, that?
1: Uh, I think just because the revenue has been a little bit uh, in pieces and sure. we get like chunks of revenue here and chunks there. But to show the consistent um, flow of revenue has been challenging. Okay. And as things start to ramp up now, you know, we've had we've had some investor conversations and we're we're trying to figure out how to truly scale this so that we can automate the production and create, um, you know, I guess just more opportunities to sell in bigger volumes. But uh, investment has been very, very difficult for us. Right. So without private investment, we can only grow to a certain extent. Without.
0: Is, is that the main thing that the, the private investors are looking for is is. Um consistency of of revenue yeah, okay
1: yeah definitely definitely so um yeah we're, we're just trying to figure out some new ways now that we can sell large volumes and that's going to kind of get us i guess in front of more investors and we're just right. pushing and trying you know the best type of i guess investment is just revenue through our company so sure. we're yeah work.
0: and you don't owe anything to anyone
1: We're secretly hoping that that's what's going to happen other than relying on, aside from relying on, you know, potential investors. I feel like that's just a risky move to, to wait on investors, but you know, our hope is that we have enough to keep this company going and uh, you know, we have every reason to believe we can, but it's going to take us longer because we got thrown off course with the COVID piece.
0: Yeah, no, that makes sense. And you're encouraged by things like seeing these orders pop up in Europe and Africa and and wherever else um, that's the thing. And, and, you know, it's, if you want to scale something, you got to build something worth scaling first and there's proof of the market across like, you know, internationally that, that it works. Right. Hmm. It's funny that um, the thing you need to improve, to get the investment might be the thing that sways you away from getting the private investment. Right from a revenue perspective champagne problem
1: yeah well we're launching a new women's health kit now so it's going to have one of our models in there with a stand and then a speculum all the swabs that you would use in a women's health um, pelvic exam and so that every we we would love to see every doctor's office across the country have one of those things in there um even just demonstrating for young women how to insert a tampon like really simple things that I'm sure would never really cross uh, a guy's mind, but you know, young women, these are just really basic things that have never been talked about, even for women, like women don't even think about those things. Yeah. So now that we're starting to think about like, where are those gaps just in women's health in general? And how do women learn how to do certain things like insert a tampon or a menstrual cup is the new one. Cause that's kind yeah. of the newest area of women's health that's very much shrouded in mystery still and preventing the uptake of that product. And that product can change lives because if you're in a developing country and you can't afford sanitary napkins or you know any feminine hygiene products, one menstrual cup is all you need for years. That's all you need, just one. So, I mean, like if women were able to access these affordable prices and actually know how to use them and not feel afraid to try, mm. then that could be life-changing for someone in a country where they don't have access to those products, so.
0: Mm. So, you, so- Looking at the domestic market, well, maybe look at Canada and US. Um, Is there is there just still a huge amount of opportunity in your mind in terms of getting into these doctor's offices or is it is it saturated? How how big is the opportunity?
1: I mean, it's right now it's kind of endless. Um, I, I don't know any doctor's office or any doctor that we've spoken to in the past couple of years that has had anything like this in their office. Hmm. And the interest and appetite is definitely there right. to have something like this, to teach young patients about various procedures. Um, so I think there's a lot of different areas that we're, we're hitting here. So um, general practitioners, so your family doctor's offices, any sort of OBGYN doctor or practitioner, um, healthcare trainees just to have to be able to train with um, private practitioners. So pelvic floor physiotherapists that want to teach their about various ways to strengthen the perineum and the the pelvic floor and and whatnot. So I feel like there's just so many areas and also sexual health. I think this is uh, something that we didn't really think too much about in the early stages, but there's been a huge demand um, for anatomically accurate models in sexual health. And they've been using a lot of, you know, sex toys and things that are, you know, not, uh, I would say anatomically accurate when they come in, you know, fluorescent pink skin tones and whatnot. Yeah. Yeah. And so um, we've also had some purchases from different uh, sexual health organizations. We've been talking to various uh, nonprofit uh, oh, organizations yeah. as well that offer sexual health uh, teaching and learning for young, you know, uh, members. And mm. I just feel like that's also an underserved area that we need totally. to ramp up. Even- I just, it's basic and I just, it blows my mind that this is 2021. And we're talking, oh, that's
0: why I'm still, I'm still struggling with this. It's like, I still don't understand. I mean, my, I was, um, talking to my wife about this, um, in- interview that we're going to have. And she, she teaches sex ed at middle school in here in Alberta. Yeah. And she's like, it is the worst. Like I'm, I'm either drawing it on the board or I'm like looking around and grabbing, one time she said she used a stapler and she was trying to create yeah. that connection. point. So school divisions, I mean, like this is another market potentially, right?
1: Yeah. And I just think it comes down to price points. And- okay. Now, are these
0: reusable? Sorry to interrupt. Are these reusable? Because it's like, come on, people. Like I don't
1: know. Like- well, the suturing models eventually will wear out, right? Sure. So maybe you get an academic school year, maybe 30 suturing sessions out of a suturing model. Um, but also that's a pretty niche area where it's just the, you know, um, healthcare trainees in OBGYN programs or GPs or medical school that are using those other than that, sexual health, like your wife teaches or anything else. Um, it, they're all reusable you could keep it indefinitely. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I think it's just price point. Like, I'd love to send your wife one and just see what she thinks and see, if yeah, for sure. um, just ask if she needs one, happy to send one her way. Um, ironically, when we started the company, our very first customer was in men's health. And they wanted male anatomical models. They asked if we could do it. I said yes. And we shipped off a box of 50 male anatomical models for <laughs> demonstrating a urinary incontinence device. And it was actually really important because um, they were losing patients and potential new patients uh, from the adoption of this device because. When they would give these to the clinicians in these in these urology offices i guess they were having trouble explaining it to the potential patients and of course the potential patients felt like these <laughs> are men so in men's urology and they were a little bit nervous about inserting anything into the, their their urethra sure and so we created the, uh, an anatomical model for them so that the uh, clinic nurse or the urology nurse could teach the the male patients this is the device here's an anatomical model representing your anatomy and this is how it's inserted. This is how it's extracted. And here's how it's going to feel. They can actually feel the model. And mm. we were so excited because they told us that the uptake had increased because suddenly these men were able to see how this thing worked and the fear was reduced.
0: That's it. You
1: know, how that works. It's just like, it's just like when you can touch and feel, suddenly you're not as scared it's more real it's more like okay well now I can see what it looks like and how it is inserted and Mm I think I can do that myself
0: just the way you're describing this it just feels to me that price should not be an issue at some point
1: yeah I think you know we started off a little higher in terms of price point the uptake wasn't there but as we started dropping the price we realize a lot more private practitioners were purchasing, but I think to get into the public healthcare systems, they have to be mm. maybe even special yeah. pricing just for them. So we can right. actually penetrate that space, but um, yeah, we're still working on finding the exact yeah. price for the work. Well, That's
0: part, to- part of the game. <laughs> yeah, exactly. um, so I, I see if I missed some questions here. What um, if you can kind of, give a preview to you know if you were to fast forward five ten years like and in granville biomedicals being featured in you know your guys's industry's top top publication what are some of the what are some of the highlights that they're saying if you could paint it the way you want it painted mm-hmm.
1: I think if I could paint it the way I wanna paint it, I would love for someone to see us as a very multifaceted team, very adaptable founders, um, a company that was small, but was able to grow and expand to touch so many parts of women's health. Mm -hmm. And I don't think we're a one trick pony. Like I don't think these models are like our only thing because we have an amazing engineering and design team So we can make swabs we can make pelvic exam swabs we can create other devices we can create things for dentists if we if we wanted to anything in terms of consumable medical devices i'm not saying we're we're super you know in terms of expertise we're not experts in it but we can certainly design and prototype and work with anyone who either wants to partner with us or things that are needed in the healthcare system or if we see additional gaps down the road so I feel like we're gonna keep doing that. We're gonna keep, yeah. you know, maybe it's a new model that has different features or whatever it is, but I think um, I, I wanna be known for that company that was small but mighty and touched so many parts of women's health that eventually people had to listen. Right. And I think I wanna actually create awareness around some of the issues that are not talked about in women's health so right. that other people can join the movement that we're starting Right. or that we're part of, um, cause we've met other people that want to make change too. And they just don't feel like they have the ability without, you know, other, I don't know, companies or organizations. But I think when you band together and start moving forward together, you start moving that dial yeah. and I just want to be known for just moving the dial, even an in increment or a millimeter, but I feel like we just need to keep doing that. So, yeah. yeah.
0: Well, that's awesome. I think that that, I'm I'm optimistic that story will be written at some point, just based on based on what I've learned about you. Um, you know, sometimes I like to ask uh, for founders such as yourself that are in pursuit of growth and you know leveraging different marketing strategies to to go after more growth. Um, typically, these these founders are, you know. Driven, motivated, organized people, but a lot of times they have very specific routines that prime them to be able to be effective. Do you subscribe to any form of a, a ritual or routine or whatever, whatever that switch is to get you going?
1: Yeah, 100%. I'm a big believer in it. I think, um, like I, I always say, the way you do one thing is the way you do everything. And did I say that right? The way you do one yeah, thing, not, is the yeah. way you do everything because I feel like my mindset has always been that way where I go all in on things I do. So I'm very heavy in the fitness world. I used to be a professional fitness competitor. I still train uh, regularly consistently throughout COVID. I'm back in the gym again. Now I feel like that's a huge part of my life, but it's also balanced my mental health. Mm. I'm also a big believer in counseling. Even when things are going good, I feel like everyone should be on board with, with mental health counseling, because when things are going good, you want to always be reminded of how you got there. Right. And when things go sideways, you want to have that framework to get back to those good points. Right. So big believer in counseling. I do it when times are good, when times are bad fitness has always been there. I've always leaned into that through good and bad times. And, uh, and I think just, you know, travel was taken away from me this past year, but, I really feel like to strike a work-life balance has always been my dream. I'm always working on that, but I've traveled a lot. And I always find travel very um, great for mental health breaks. And Mm -hmm. I did not get one of those this past year. And I can see how my mental health has has been compromised a little bit. But hopefully now that things are opening, um, I can start taking vacations again. and, And myself and my partner can go away and just relax a little bit and get away from the grind of all of this past pandemic and year and Um, but, but yeah, those things I really lean into heavily and Hmm. and for, for a long time was in martial arts. And I always feel like anything that challenges you and helps humble you and keep your ego in check and work on your physical health, I feel like, and mental health are all the things I'm a huge fan of. So that's been my secret recipe. If you want to call it. That's awesome.
0: Yeah, it's, uh, it's a direct line between keeping those sorts of habits, I think, and, and priming yourself for success, those are that's interesting. I never thought about travel as a way to, but it is totally experience. What is it most that you like about the travel? The, the culture experience, the food, the all, all of it. Of- I mean,
1: I've traveled a lot. I've been to about twenty three countries now, and I'm a big believer that you should occasionally, at least once in your life, go and live or travel uh, in a country where you are the complete minority. You don't speak the language and you don't have cheat sheets to get everywhere. Like you had to go there, figure out the currency, figure out the language, figure out how to be polite and respectful and get around. Yeah. And if you can do it by yourself, I think that's probably the most growth you're ever going to see mentally and spiritually in yourself. That's where I found it. Hmm. I lived in Korea for a while where I was definitely um, a major minority. I didn't speak the language. I couldn't even pick up the language. And uh, very humbling to, to start with nothing from ground zero and try to figure things out. Yeah. And if, if I had it my way, every mm-hmm. single high school student would spend a, a semester or a year abroad in a country where they're just by themselves in that scenario where they can learn compassion and adaptability and also just how to uh, keep you know, your ego in check and understand that you're not the epicenter of this universe. Yeah. When you're in a different country, different continent, in a different country. All bets are off, and, and you're no longer, you know, um, in that same position yeah. or on that platform as you are in North America. And I really think that's so important. But my my most pivotal trip in my life, though, that changed a lot of things for me, was a trip to South Africa, hmm. and to kind of see how things were down there and just how everything. You're on the other side of the planet and you know it's just uh it's a very humbling experience but i always say that you'll never be the same once you see the sunrise or sets from a different place yeah, never the same
0: that's true that's awesome yeah. before i let you go there's a lot of uh you know entrepreneurs and 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 marketing leaders so business leaders marketing leaders in this audience and um you know when you're when you're thinking about um Pursuing growth in a in an environment that's very difficult. There's external factors, whether it be like a strong competitive set or some macroeconomic factors like COVID. Uh, what what words of encouragement do you have for for these people?
1: Um, anyone's thinking about starting a company or
0: yeah, anyone? Well, they've started and they're in sort of that one to two year mark. Okay, um, I
1: got it. and
0: yeah, so, and in pursuit of growth and uh, and there's a few factors piled up against them?
1: Um, I think you know the main key takeaway for me, and I can only speak based on my own experience, is to keep your options open, to not be so narrow-sighted that you think where you start is where you're going to end up. Yeah. And I think that is um, a fatal flaw for a lot of companies. They, they want to hang on to that initial concept, initial product, initial vision, and initial linear path so badly that when things start changing for them, they don't wanna adapt and um, you know embrace that. So I, I just feel like your path's gonna be non-linear no matter what, and the easier it is for you to adapt and uh, kind of run with that as changes come, I think the more success you're gonna find okay. because like we talked about in the beginning, the market doesn't lie, so if yeah, one starts right. to work, there's absolutely no reason why you can't move into something very different, very quickly, fail fast and figure it out and go on to something else and keep your company alive. That's right. So, yeah. That's, that's my two cents. So I don't know where, where we're going to end up and I, I yeah. do hang on to women's health, but there's no guarantee. Right. So we're going to do what we can in that space and just keep moving forward. And if it's medical devices, then it is, but we, we will always keep something in women's health alive and well. So that's, that's our promise to that, to that space.
0: That's awesome. Such a joy talking to you and uh, learned, I've learned so much and I'm sure the audience has as well and uh, rooting for you big time, so.
1: Oh, thanks so much.
0: The Growth League podcast is brought to you by Hook and Ladder Digital. We are a digital marketing agency that focuses on building and nurturing engaged brand communities, as well as designing, developing, and optimizing lead generation and conversion funnels that leverage advertising, email, landing pages, and content. Our goal is to connect great products and services with the people that want and need them most at the time that makes most sense for them. We want to see business leaders and marketers win and experience next level growth by co-creating a strategy and working together to implement into market and realize the ROI that we're all looking for. So if you have any questions on your digital marketing program, you need support, or you'd just like to have us take a look, please check us out www.hldigital.ca. Thanks so much.